Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And we come this evening to the last of the messages for the seven churches of Asia. This is the church at Laodicea. And it's very fitting, I think, that this church should be the last one because perhaps of all of the churches that Jesus spoke to, this one was the very worst. But this was a church that was, it was a church that was mired in such complacency and compromise that it was a church that gave a sickening feeling to the Lord. Now, many have denied that this was even a church at all. I mean, there really wasn't very much in their practices and what they were doing that would commend them as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many would say that the flame had already gone out in this church. I think they probably still were a church at the time that Jesus spoke these words to them because he did speak to them. He did send them a letter or told John to send them a letter. It was still a church but probably just barely hanging on by the thinnest of threads before uh, Christ was ready to remove that candlestick from this church. Of the seven churches of Asia, this one receives no commendation. There's nothing at all for the Lord to praise about this church, and so he gets very direct and to the point very quickly, and he tells them how upset he is with the affairs of that church, and he just lays it all out before him, and he very simply says that you are a church that makes me sick. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, I would think, or I do believe, that if Jesus were to send out letters to churches today, that perhaps very, very many of the churches that are around us will receive a letter just like this one, where Jesus says, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the practices of your church. You have a sickening type of Christianity. And I I think the majority of churches would probably fall into this category. So what does he say to this church? And and how are we to avoid being a church like the one at Laodicea? Well, let's stand up. Let's look at God's word. Let's read our text verses tonight. In Revelation chapter 3, and we start at verse number 14. Revelation 3, 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, again for everyone who's come here tonight. We just ask you, Lord, as we open up the word of God that... You would guide the words that I have to speak. And Lord, uh, some things that I have to say may not be too pleasant to all, but we do want to accept these as your words. And 
understand very clearly what you would have us to do as a church and that we might not fall into the same things that this church in Laodicea, Laodicea fell into. Bless the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now you may be seated. Perhaps it isn't very hard for you to see in this short letter that we've just read why that this church was in danger of no longer being called one of the Lord's true churches. If we go back to that very first letter when Jesus was speaking to the church at Ephesus, there was a a problem in that church, and Jesus said that he was very aware of their works. He said, I know your labor and I know your patience. The church at Ephesus was an untiring church. It was a hard-working church. They were doctrinally sound. They were uncompromising. And yet, there was a complaint about that church, and it was that the church had lost their first love. The Ephesian church had very much in the church to commend it for, but they had an error that was so serious in that church that they were in danger of no longer being one of the Lord's churches. With the exception of the Philadelphia church that we studied in our last lesson, all the way from Ephesus to this last church that we're talking about tonight, there is a spiraling trend downward. Things just seem to keep getting worse and worse. In each of those cases where uh, Jesus was speaking to the other churches, he would say, the church of Ephesus, or the, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamos, or the church in Thyatira, whatever the case may be, he would say, this is the church in or of that particular city in which they were located. But if you wanted to speak of a church that had totally lost all of its love and understanding for the one they were supposed to follow, the one who was to be their leader, you would begin a letter just like the one that Jesus starts right here. There is a remarkable change of address as Jesus talks to the church at Laodicea. He says, unto the angel, that's to that pastor there, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. And so he doesn't say, this is a letter to the church at Laodicea, the one in Laodicea, of Laodicea. He says, this is a letter to the church of the Laodiceans. And what that means is that this was a self-consumed church rather than a Christ-consumed church. And so the idea was that this was their church. It's not Christ's church. This is their church. And so they exist to fulfill their desires, to go the way that they want to go, follow their own paths. And what they were doing had nothing at all to do with Christ, who is the founder of the church. Now, in Ephesus, the problem was love, but... Even with all the problems that they had, they were still aware of the one who possessed the church. But here, in the Laodicean church, Christ is actually an outsider. And it couldn't be stated any more clearly than what we find there in that 20th verse, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that tells us that he was on the outside. Of course, there is an application in that statement to all of these churches, but none could be clear and more appropriate as it applied to this particular church at Laodicea. Now, this evening, I want to take just a few minutes to examine this church. This is the last one, and surely we do not want to fall into the depths that this church had fallen. Well, how did they get this way? Well, let's notice, first of all tonight, the disaster they allowed. There was a disaster that they allowed in their church. There was a change in the people's attitude. Well, probably that wasn't a sudden change, 
More likely, it was a slow transition until people had adjusted to the culture that was around them. They didn't get too alarmed at the moral condition of the people in their city. They weren't too upset by doctrinal changes that were taking place in the church. And so they just preferred on these issues of morality and the doctrine of the church just to stay neutral. And so they waved a flag of neutrality and they said, don't bother us with such things as that. Now, here's the first problem with this church. First of all, they were complacent in their Christianity. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus says to them, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. So Jesus says, I know your works. Now, that's what nails everything down. That's what leaves no wiggle room here for anyone to argue otherwise. He says, I know your works. In other words, your works are defining what you are as a Christian and what you really believe in your heart. That's going to come out in your works. And Jesus says, I know what those works are like. You may think that you're something else. You have big claims. You say that there's a lot of truth in the church. You have a lot of rhetoric there. But what it really comes down to is your works. What do you do? What, what kind of example are you? Do you have true discipleship? And that's the way that you really prove your discipleship and the way that you follow the Lord is by the works that you do. Now, these in this church I would call milquetoast Christians. Milquetoast Christians. They, they're, they're not people who would stand up and say, this particular thing is wrong And this over here is right. And what we ought to do is not go the way that's wrong. We ought not to go in the way that's against God. But let's follow the thing that's right. Let's stand up for that. Let's let's be the kind of people that there's no equivocation here. We believe what's right and we stand up for that right. This was not a church that would do that. Now, they had the idea that much of the world has today, that truth is a relative thing. And what your truth is may not necessarily be my truth really, really, it comes down to what's real is what you feel. And so I'm not going to state my opinion about what you do and whether that's right or wrong because you just go ahead and you do whatever it is that makes you happy. And so these are non-committant and and, uh, committal and, and compromising Christians. And what that produced in them was a bland neutrality. We're not for anything. We're not against anything. Now, Jesus said to them, you're not cold and you're not hot. You're just kind of stuck right there in the middle. You're going with the flow. And Jesus says to them, that makes me sick. Well, the word that he used is lukewarm. Have you ever thought about that? Why is lukewarm worse than being cold or hot? You would think that maybe the best kind of Christianity would be that we're very even-tempered, that we just kind of go down to the middle so that we don't ruffle feathers on either side of the aisle. We're not too liberal. We're not too conservative. We just kind of go right down the middle so we don't make anybody mad. Well, the problem, though, with lukewarm Christianity is that you never know what you get. You never know which side that a person is on. Now, if a church is cold, then you know what you've got to deal with. I mean, a cold church... These are people that are going to sit down. They're going to be content to do whatever it is they do. You're not going to go in there and stir up the pot and get those people excited about anything. 
I mean, these are people that'll sit there and they'll say, we're not interested in anybody else. We, we just do our own thing. We don't want anything new. We stay the course and we're going to die with our hands frozen at the wheel. This is what we like and that's the way we're going to stay. I can deal with that kind of person. And I can deal with a church like that because I know exactly what I'm getting. I could even learn to preach to a church like that. Because what I would do, I would just get up and I would stand there and I'd preach simply doctrinal messages, straight up and down the line, doctrinal messages. There are no applications in it. There's no work to be done. People just sit and listen. And we just bind ourselves up there and we sit motionless because we're not going to do anything. We just like to be cold. Well, you know what you're getting. You know how to deal with that. On the other hand, what about a hot church? Well, you know where a hot church stands too. Some of them get too hot to handle, but at least you know there's some activity that's going on there. And you know you can't slow down because if you do, you're going to get run over by the gospel express. You know exactly what you've got. A hot church may have to have its energy directed in the right way because sometimes it's not going in the right direction, but you've got something that you can work with there. So you know where they stand. If it's a question of morality, you don't have to worry about that because you've got a church that's full of these quick-draw gunslingers that they can pull out their big King James Bible and they can quote chapter and verse on anything that it is. I mean, faster than you can even think it, they know the answer to all the moral questions. I can deal with that. What What I want to be sure of is that I have a church that's hot spiritually and not one that's just full of hot heads. And that's a problem with churches too. Some churches come to the place where they mistake hot for hate. And so they say, well, we're the rock rib fundamentalist and we hate everything. I mean, we've got our sign here and it tells you what we don't like. And if you don't like what we do, you stay out of our way because we'll run over you too. Well, well, you know what you've got. Cold is better because you know what that person is like. And hot is better because you know what you have to work with. Now, lukewarm neutrality, that's a totally different matter. You know, I, I sort of like it to sh- liken it to shaking hands with people. Some people are very cold towards you. They don't want to shake your hand. They stand back and stand aloof. That's okay. I can deal with people like that. On the other hand, you have people, yes, they'll shake your hand. They grip it strongly. If you've got arthritis, they can make you feel the pain when they shake your hand. But lukewarm Christianity, that's kind of like the Christian who's got that limp-wristed handshake. They just hang it out there, you know, you shake their hand, it's like messing with a dead fish or something. I mean, that's just what it feels like. This is what Jesus is talking about, a lifeless, dead Christianity that's noncommittal. These are the kind of people Jesus says to them, this makes me sick. He said, I want to spew you out of my mouth. Now, the word spew here that we have in this passage is kind of an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word emio. How many of you have ever heard of an emetic? You know what emetic is? Well, some of you might know what that is. If you have uh, any kind of poisonous chemicals around your house, sometimes you might read on the label of that. It says, if you accidentally swallow some of this, then you need to take an emetic. Well, if you know Greek, you would know what that means. And for the rest of you that didn't understand what the word is, what it means simply is induce vomiting. It comes from the very same word. An emetic, emio, means to vomit. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Because you're not cold and you're not hot, you make me want to hurl, if we want to put it in modern language. So complacent Christianity is the worst, most sickening type. They won't take a stand. They're what you call squatters. And if they do take a stand on anything, it's a stand that's forged in compromise. 
This kind of reminds me of a few weeks ago we sat down and we were eating dinner. And if we eat dinner just a little bit late, we get beyond Judge Judy, so we're not watching her. So we uh, turn on the television and, and Jeopardy's on. I like to watch Jeopardy. Anybody here a fan of Jeopardy? Okay, all right, I'm in the right church here. Uh, I like Jeopardy, but I was watching Jeopardy on this, on this particular night, and there was a lady contestant. She was standing right there in the middle, the middle contestant, and she had a priest collar around her neck. And Alex introduced her as an Episcopal priest. This is an example, friends, of vomit Christianity. This is where people want to be religious. They want to have their church services, and they want to have their liturgy. But let's not try to offend anybody. What we really need to do is put some women into the ministry because that will help us to appear more fair and balanced. Some of the churches you go in and they also say, well, let us put some gays into the ministry because that shows that we are, we are inclusive of everybody's lifestyle. So what we'll do, we'll just pat people on the head. We'll be nice and sweet to them. We'll never talk about sin and we'll never talk about that hell Let's don't talk about hell. They won't mention that. And they just shudder when they say the word. I tell you, I would have liked to have been a contestant on Jeopardy that day. I don't care. I don't care if I could answer even a single question. I would just like to be there to harass that half-baked woman priest. That's what I would do. But this is the Christianity that we have today. It's vomit Christianity because it never takes a stand. It ignores the Bible. I mean, it's curly-haired, fake grin sweetness. It stands up there and says, there's no such thing as sin. We won't talk about sin. We won't talk about a place called hell. And the preacher stands up there and he says, before I close the services at Lakewood Church today, I want you to know that God loves everybody. And those of you that take crack cocaine, just say a little prayer for that because not everybody can afford crack cocaine. (laughs) What about the liars? What about the whoremongers? What about the adulterers? And the Bible says they'll all have their part in the lake of fire. But we're not too much concerned about the lake of fire because we're the Lakewood Church where we're preaching our doctrine. This is what we believe. And some of you may not even get the reference that I'm talking about. Just go look it up tonight or something after you get home. We're we're the Lakewood Church. And it kind of sounds like the lake of fire to me, doesn't it? It's got kind uh, kind of a similar ring to the whole thing. I've never read in the Bible where it says that Jesus ever got sick. But right here, it says that Jesus hates this milky, sweet, syrupy Christianity. It makes him sick. Now, we need to go on here because this is a disastrous church. They're complacent about their Christianity, and also they did not comprehend their true condition. They had it all wrong. Now, they thought they had everything right, but they have it all wrong. Now, Jesus talks about their self-assessment in verse number 17. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here is a church that says we have all that we need. Everything that we need, we have. Well, the background of the city, that, that will help us to understand a little bit better why Jesus says what he says here. Why does he make these comments? Well, Laodicea was a, was a rich city. It was a city uh, that was a center of banking and commerce. They were a producer of a world-famous black wool. They were a center of medicine. They had produced a breakthrough product that was an eye salve that went around to all the different parts of the world. 
So here you have a city that has J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. They have Saks Fifth Avenue. They have Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. They have all the industry that they need. They have all the money that they need. The bank chairman goes to this church. Calvin Klein has a pew there. Everybody in the church has a Medtronic stent. So what else do they need? They've got everything that they want. They, they had so much money that when there was an earthquake that occurred in the city in 60 A.D., they didn't look for any, any outside help. Nobody was complaining because FEMA was late showing up. They just rebuilt the city on their own. They took their own money, their own funds. They didn't ask help from anybody. They said, we're rich. We have everything that we need. Leave us alone. We'll take care of ourselves. Don't bother us. And the church had the very same attitude as the city. We don't need you. We don't need anybody else. This is our church. This is the church of the Laodiceans. And Jesus says, well, you you don't have a clue. You don't really know what you need. You don't know what really matters. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Now, we notice here how Jesus' words kind of fall in line with the strengths of that city. You've got banks, you think you're rich, but he says you're wretched, you're miserable, and you're poor. You have that special eye salve that you develop, and you, you... Send it out all over the world. You crate it up and send it out to all different parts of the world. But he says, you yourselves, you're blind. He said, you have this special wool that you produce there, and you make it into fine clothing, and you, you, you dress up and you look beautiful. You have all these garments, but you don't even realize when I look at you, you are naked. You don't even have a clue what it's all about. You don't know who you really are. Now, isn't it? kind of interesting that the church and Christianity is in the same place today. I mean, churches that have the big buildings and they have plenty of money to hire the musicians who play in the church. They, they can build a sound stage right here next to the pulpit area and they can have all kinds of entertainment. They're the designer church where everybody comes in the finest clothing. And when you go to a church like, uh, like that, it's like, I mean, everybody's like they're walking down the runway of America's top model. We'll wear whatever we want to, and we'll just wear as little as we want to as long as we can get away with it without getting arrested. So we look good. I mean, squint your eyes just a little bit. Rub your eyes and see how good we really look. We're cool and we're hip. Just come and taste our specialty coffees. I mean, the Starbucks doesn't have anything on us. We've got it all. It's all right here in our church. And they say you only go around life in once, so this is the church that you need to be a part of. And it's not a clue. They don't have a clue what true Christianity is or what it means to serve Christ. This is vomit Christianity. Sickening. Looking for love in all the wrong places. That's the disaster that they allowed. And so they'd made a mess of the church. Now let's see how Jesus deals with them. Secondly tonight, the discipline they should accept. The discipline they should accept. Now the discipline actually deals with this problem of self-sufficiency. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And those are areas that are the exact opposite of what the city was known for. And so the discipline that Christ gives them covers those areas. Look at verse 18, if you would. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Now, let's look then at three areas of counsel that Jesus gives this church. The first one 
has to do with gold, and it represents a difference in values. Now, for a Christian, the gold standard has absolutely nothing to do with money. Here's a church that's reached a state of complacency, and so what they have materially, that's their standard. God's not interested in that standard. If he had been interested in that, then he would have targeted only rich people. But what did Jesus say? He said, well, it's very difficult for rich people to get into heaven. Well, why did he say that? Because they trust their riches rather than trusting God. Paul said, there's not many of those kinds of people that are called, not many noble, not many mighty, not many of those kinds of people are called. The value system must change. You see, spiritual worth, that's the thing that counts. Paul calls it walking worthy. And when you walk worthy, he says, this is when you're, and Jesus said, that's when you're storing up treasures in heaven. That's when you pile up all of these these rewards that Christ will give you. And that's given to you for following him very closely. So you love what Christ loves. You hate what Christ hates. You receive him as the Lord of your life. And so when he comes in, he begins to direct your paths. You begin to follow him. You go where he says. And when paths are wrong, you stay out of those ways. You stay away from them. And when the path is right, you follow directly behind the Lord and you defend all things that are right. So the most valuable thing that's in God's kingdom is not your stock portfolio. It's not the golden parachute that you have at retirement. In God's kingdom, gold is actually the value of his work. What do you do to advance the kingdom of God? It has to change. Your value system must change. The second thing that he addresses here is their clothing. And he talks about white raiment. And what that represents is a difference in virtue. White raiment is a picture of the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness is given to us in justification. And in justification, that's where the guilt of our sins are taken away. And we have the merits of Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us. And so that means that the life of Christ, what he did on this earth, that righteous life that he lived, is given to us as our righteousness. And by that, we're justified. But the Bible also teaches that we're sanctified. And sanctification is the holiness that makes us fit to come into the presence of God. Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see God. Now, as a Christian, do you ever feel unholy? Do you ever feel that way? You know, I I feel unholy lots of times. I mean, I, I, I can only say, like the Apostle Paul did, that I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. So there are times when I feel like I really can't come into the presence of God. But there are some Christians who think that way all of the time. And so what they try to do, they try to rectify the situation. They try to correct it. And the way they do it is they try to clean themselves up a little bit. And so they go and they put on all the right clothes and they go get the right haircut and they're very prim and proper in the way that they look. But none of those things are what brings you into the presence of God. You see, you're still guilty before God no matter how you dress. So I can't come to Christ with my virtue I can only come to him because of the virtues of Christ. And so sanctification is really not me doing, it's God doing through me. And that's the only way that I can come into his presence. Now, at the very moment, the Bible teaches at the very moment that you trust Christ, you're actually fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, at that moment, I'm sanctified, and should I die before I get my 
sanctified haircut or die before I put on my sanctified clothing, I will be in the presence of God by the virtue of Christ's righteousness. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The problem in Laodicea is all the virtue that they have is their virtue. It's whatever they earned. It's whatever they did. And so that's why it's their church, because it's all dependent upon them. But in God's view, my virtue is Christ. It's none of me. And so when I become a part of him and I become a part of his church, it's his church and it's not mine, because it's all dependent upon the virtue of Christ. Now the third area that he deals with them is about their eyes. Anointed eyes, he says. And what this is is a difference in vision. The Laodiceans looked at the world through what we call rose-colored glasses. They didn't see anybody's lifestyle that they couldn't embrace. There's nothing that they couldn't tolerate. There's actually no wickedness according to them because what we really need to do is our own thing. I mean, what satisfies us? We fulfill our own purposes and we get in touch with God the best way that we know how. And so they simply make statements like, smile, God loves you. And now you can go on and continue with what you were doing. And that's the vision that we have in many churches today. It's a come-as-you-are mentality that leaves you just like you came. You come as you are with your sin and you leave with your sin. But Jesus calls us to a much different vision. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But he also said this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at not at things which are seen. Now keep your mind here that we're talking about the vision. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. A church is in danger of becoming a Laodicean church is if all that we can see is what is around us. But Christ calls us not to walk according to the world, not to react to the temporal world only. And that's because when you look at worldly things, you will turn out to be a worldly Christian. I mean, there's no other way around that. If you embrace worldly things, you become a worldly Christian. And so he tells us that our vision must be higher than that. We must look for the things that are unseen. And so I would tell you as a Christian that when you get a glimpse of heaven and when you get a glimpse of the king of heaven, your outlook on everything will change. Now I want you to take your Bible now if you would and let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. I want to show you here how a vision of God can cause you to look at yourself differently. Isaiah had a vision and in the vision he saw the throne of God. Next uh, week, I guess it's probably two weeks now, that we'll get into chapter 4, and we're going to be talking about God's throne room and get a vision of God's throne room. But I want to show you here in this particular passage how a vision of Isaiah, seeing God's throne, actually changed his outlook. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. 
Now, we're going to get into some of this as we get into Re- uh, further into Revelation. We talk about these seraphims. These are special angels of God. And so Isaiah sees all this. And so these seraphim are speaking to one another. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now listen to Isaiah's reaction, verse 5. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. No person who has a heavenly vision... And I'm not talking about here some kind of supernatural ability to actually see into heaven. I'm not speaking of that. I'm talking about a heavenly vision where you understand who God really is. When you have that understanding, you will never applaud yourself. You'll never pat yourself on the back and say, what a good boy am I. You'll never dispute. You will never question the sovereignty of God over the affairs of all men. You will never see yourself as anything other than a vile, wicked sinner who has no right to stand in the presence of God. And just as Isaiah says right here, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. When you get the right vision of God, you will get a right vision of you. There's no bragging there. There's no self-sufficiency in it. There's nothing like the Laodicean church said, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I really don't have any need of anything. Now when a church gets to this place, when they're at the end of this spiral, like the church at Laodicea was, then this is a church that has not really seen a true vision of God, so they understand who they are. This is a church that had gone further than any of those six churches that were before them. They're on a downward trend. They hadn't just lost their first love, They'd come to the place where they thought they didn't even really need him at all. And so this is a church that says, we are the church of the Laodiceans, instead of saying that we are a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's one final thing that I want to note this evening. Number three is the desire of the amen. Who is the amen? Now, that that seems a little strange, but that's actually a title that's applied to Christ in verse number 14. And this is the way that he introduces himself to this church. If you look at verse 14 again. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Amen is a word that denotes truthfulness. Whenever I make a statement, sometimes you may say, Amen. And what that means is, what you say is true. I agree with that statement. That's a true statement that you've made. I don't hear that often for some reason, but when you're saying amen, when you do finally come to that place, that's what you're saying. Now, Jesus says, I am the amen. I am faithful and true. So actually, verse number 14 is just another one of the ways and the many statements that are made throughout Scripture that verifies the the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, these things saith the amen. Now, that sets him apart. He's not just the amen faithful, but he is the amen, which means that he is faithfulness personified. He's the pattern for all faithfulness. Now, of course, that's something that can only be said about God. The amen makes him one with God. It makes him co-equal with God. He is the truth. 
In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, Jehovah God is called there the God of truth. And so you can't miss this. It occurs over and over throughout Scripture that when we speak of Jesus, we are speaking God of very God. He is God. Then he also describes himself in that verse as being the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there's some people who like to misread that for their own purposes, and they say that he began at the creation of God. But that's not what this says. It says he is the beginning of the creation of God. That means that he's the one who created everything. He's the creator. Everything has its beginning in him. And so this is just many, many, uh, one of the many, many places where we have denial that Jesus Christ is a created being. He is actually God. Everything created began with him. Then he talks about his desire. What is the desire of Christ? Well, he desires repentance. Verse number 19 says that Christ rebukes and chastens those that he loves. If you've been a Christian for very long, you have probably, without doubt, from time to time, experienced the chastisement of God. When you are chastised for something that you do wrong, don't ever get angry with God. That's never something to be angry over because that is one of the ways that you prove that you're one of God's children. I don't spank somebody else's children. And neither does Christ chasten somebody who's not his own. And so when you get that spanking, when you get that chastening from God, you rejoice because that's proof of your salvation. Now in verse number 20... He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So the problem is that Jesus is outside of the church. I'm not sure if the works that they claim to do, that they said these are the works of Christ, probably they weren't concerned about that at all. I mean, they probably didn't matter to them at all that whether... These were the works of Christ because they'd forgotten totally about him. You know, it's sort of like uh, Hazel's not here tonight, but she was telling me about a, a time that her neighbor invited her to go to church with her. And Hazel was getting ready to go, and she picked up her Bible and was going to take it out the door with her. And the neighbor says, well, you don't need that. You don't need to take a Bible with you to church. So when Hazel got there at the church, there was nothing said about the word of God at all. There was not a word that was mentioned about Christ at all. And that's the way many churches are going today. Now, a church like that is probably not even making any kind of a pretense that what they do is for Christ. So here we see Jesus is definitely outside of the church, and there's no way that he's going to continue with them unless they let him in. They have to open the door to let him in so he can have fellowship with them again. Now, here's your last statement for your listening sheet tonight. Very simple. Open the door. That's what Christ desires of us. Open the door. Let Jesus in. Now, tonight I'm not going to go into all the abuses and misinterpretations of verse number 20. It's very clear here that the reference is to the church. He's not talking about, although we may in some kind of ways make, a, make an application to the individual human heart, but primarily he's talking here about the church. And what we cannot do, we cannot leave Jesus standing outside of the church and expect that the work that goes on inside here has anything at all to do with God. Now that's why we emphasize 
in Berean Baptist Church the preaching of the gospel and, and preaching good, sound doctrine. And that's because we don't want to forget the one that we're working for. Now, finally, he says in verses 21 and 22, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, one more time, as we've seen many times throughout these seven churches, Jesus mentions overcomers. Who is an overcomer? Well, an overcomer is simply a person who has faith in Christ. These are one and the same people. Now, what this verse does not do, it does not cast any doubt on any believer. It doesn't say that if you don't overcome, that means that you're not a believer. It's not dealing with that side of the question. What this actually is, is simply a positive statement that those who are true believers in Jesus Christ will overcome. It's a positive affirmation. And so what he's telling us here is that every person who is a believer has a set position before the throne of God. When we get into chapter 4, we'll see how that's demonstrated in a representative way. And I'm not going to get into it tonight, but we'll talk about it in chapter 4. There's a representative way seen in that fourth chapter in which all believers come before the throne of God. Now, the final question that I need to ask each of you tonight is, is Christ knocking on your door? Is he knocking on your door? And if he is, the thing for you to do is to let him in. Let him in right now. If he's knocking on the door, let him in. Now, at this moment, I don't want you to think about the theology that goes on behind all of this, because if he's knocking at the door and you let him in when we're talking about salvation, it's only because he's already unlocked the door. You can only let him in because he's there at the door. He's unlocked it so he can get in, so he will enter into your heart. And then on the other hand, as he talks to the church, we must be a church that's willing to open the door and let him come in and have fellowship with what we do here. And never think that again that we can pretend that we're doing the Lord's work as long as he's standing outside of our door. If he's continually knocking and we don't let him in, we can't do his work here. So let's make sure, friends, that the work that we do in Berean Baptist Church is not our work. It's his work. Because this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Berean Baptist Church is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not a church of me or you or anybody else. It's his church. And that's the message that he's trying to get across to the Laodiceans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Sometimes we have to say harsh things, and it's plain that we don't agree with everything that goes on around us. But Lord, help us to stand on your truth and not be the kind of Christianity that was found in the church of Laodicea. Lord, may we be a church where you are here, your presence is felt, we follow you, we go on the path that you direct. Lord, that's our greatest desire, that we might be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we'll always remain that way. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.